0: 21st century, global news is bigger, faster, more complicated, and frankly a whole lot scarier than ever. It's hard to know which stories to pay attention to, or how to make sense of it all. Don't worry too much though, because we got you covered. We're international relations PhDs, and we're here to deliver a lighthearted dose of context and analysis to your podcast app week after week. We're decoding global politics so you don't have to. We are The Elucidators. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. As always, I am your host, Steve Pally. With me, as always, is my co-host, Sumi Chatterjee. How are you doing, Sumi? Steve,
1: man, I am
0: exhausted.
1: This past, I'm going
0: to say, two weeks
1: of international news, U.S. foreign policy news, news. Has been exhausting. I also taught my first class of the quarter uh, yesterday, and I happen to be teaching a class on how U.S. foreign policy decisions get made uh, for for undergrads. So <laughs> I, I kid you not, like so I, I kick off the intro like, "Hi, here's the syllabus," and it's usually like, you know, "Hey, blah blah, administrative stuff, basics." but I decided to open the can of worms with this. I was like, hey, so how many of you all are following the Iran story? Every hand goes up. There's 120 kids in this class. Excuse me, 120 young scholars. Yeah.
0: It's, uh, it's not just your class. And, and so I'll say real fast, time check. We're recording this the evening of Tuesday, January 7th. And much has happened in the last four days. It's not just your class, Sumi. Um, I've had people come up to me in locations like the gym, And start asking me questions about whether this is World War III, whether we're going to reinstitute a draft, whether it's safe to fly on commercial aircraft um, because of the situation that we've gotten into with Iran. And we talked about sort of the prelude to this in last week's episode. Uh, What has happened in the last couple of days to get everybody so hot and bothered?
1: Yeah. Just in the last uh, few moments, like the last couple hours, Iran fired 15 missiles at Iraqi air bases in Iraq, where U.S. troops and other allied troops are housed. The immediate response has been that there have been no casualties. So that's good.
0: Among Americans. (laughs) Among
1: Americans. Yeah.
0: There may be some Iraqi casualties. And okay, so the Iranians shot some missiles into Iraq at air bases where Americans are located. Why did they do that?
1: This was this came after three days of mourning. Mourning for what? So on January 3rd, the US, under orders from President Trump, successfully engaged in a targeted drone assassination of a man named Qasem Soleimani, an Iranian general, who is, to call him a general is, OK, that's accurate. But this gentleman was far more than that. He was a general. He was a envoy, a foreign envoy. He was also sort of the head of an autonomous part of an intelligence organization. This guy was a jack of all foreign policy trades and a maker of much mischief. He was identified by our U.S. State Department as a terrorist. He had been sanctioned by the U.S. government. He was described by former CIA heads David Petraeus and John Brennan as formidable, as their chief adversary. This guy was well-respected for his capacities and well-loathed by people in the Arab world, as well as the United States and in the West, for his capabilities at carrying out asymmetrical violent attacks.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And just general skullduggery in the Middle East, right? Yeah. When you talk about Iranian proxy forces in places like Lebanon, in places like Iraq and Syria and Yemen, all the places that we've talked about on this show in previous weeks, Iran has its fingers in a lot of pies. And those were actually Soleimani's fingers, more or less, right? Um, he was the guy pulling the strings and making the connections, him personally, and he did it at the head of what's called the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, Kuds Force, right? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Man, so the Quds Force,
0: should we just go to a previously on? Because this is. I think we should do a previously on Qasem Soleimani. Previously. 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 Previously.
1: Uh. Yeah, okay, so Qasem Soleimani is uh, a fascinating guy. One of the stories, in 2013, Dexter Filkins of The New Yorker wrote a long piece. I highly recommend uh, folks go read it if they have 45 minutes to sit down and read a New Yorker article. So here's where he comes from. He's a poor guy growing up, son of a farmer. He thinks that the US-backed Shah is incredibly corrupt. His family's in debt and he has to leave his home at a young age and go work so that his family can have some money. This is not an unusual tale for people like him in this time in Iran. The revolution happens, and he wants to be part of the revolution. He supports the Ayatollah coming in. And as the Ayatollah comes into power, and the revolution happens, and Iran transforms from this Western American-leaning state into the state as we kind of have known modern Iran to be, The regime that comes in the Ayatollahs, they can't trust the military, right? Because the military was also loyal to the Shah. So they start a sort of coinciding military group called the Revolutionary Guard. So you have your regular Iranian army, then you have your Revolutionary Guard army. Air Force, a Revolutionary Guard Air Force, there's redundancy.
0: Parallel institutions, right? Absolutely,
1: yeah. Parallel institutions, to use some of our poli jargon, right? But you have these redundancies, these parallel institutions, because the Revolutionary Guard is loyal to the Ayatollah. Personally. Personally, yeah. And so Soleimani comes up. He's not very well-educated, but he's sharp. And he rises through the ranks of the Revolutionary Guard, and he gets to a point where he then becomes a the leader of the Kuds Force that you referenced in our intro.
0: Yeah, and just real fast to interject, he rises by basically feats of battlefield bravery during the Iran-Iraq War of the 1980s, which by many accounts was, if not the worst war of the uh, later 20th century, like one of the worst international wars. This was really bad. And it killed about a million people on both sides. And it's, you know, it, it, like the Iraqis, with American and Western help, targeted the Iranians with chemical weapons. Missiles were launched against cities on both sides. And it was just like brutal trench warfare in between these two states. So this is Saddam Hussein. Uh, when we were friends with him, And there's a famous picture of Don Rumsfeld uh, shaking hands with Saddam Hussein from from this era.
1: That's right. Rumsfeld, who, of course, the, the irony of that is Rumsfeld was George W. Bush's secretary of defense. Spearheaded the second Gulf War. Right. So in the 80s, shaking hands in the early part of this century, coming for Saddam. The, the main thing to take away from the Iraq-Iran war is that it affected Soleimani deeply. That's number one, because it's topical. It's what we're talking about. But two, in the broader sense of Iranian foreign policy, Iran realized this one thing. And this can't be understated. Iran is not going to fight conventional wars to stay secure. They come into existence in 79 they have to fight for survival all the way so they're going to have to find ways of maintaining their survival and the way that they're going to do this is to find folks in the greater muslim world that share a similar religious ideology with them and make them their allies shia islam more specifically that's right iran is shia and so they look for shia allies in Iraq, Iraq is a majority Shia state. They look for uh, Shia allies in Lebanon and they, they create a half-terrorist, half-political movement in Hezbollah. They, their idea is to create what they call the Shia Crescent from the eastern Mediterranean all the way through Tehran and Iran so that they can have this form of security. They recognize that big states like the U.S. can win top-down. They can come in with air power, they can use nuclear weapons if need be, and they can win conventional wars. But the way that Iran is going to maintain survival is through having bottom-up support by supplying weapons, supplying financial support to Shia brethren in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Yemen, in these various places, to destabilize their enemies and create allies.
0: That's right. And Soleimani was personally responsible for creating the Shia crescent of like proxy militias with bags of cash, weapons shipments, missiles, you name it. Um, this was a big part of his function as kind of like, I guess you could say the foreign branch of the Revolutionary Guard, the Quds Force, which is involves some of the most talented uh, soldiers that Iran actually has. It's a smaller sort of force of crack troops that are very skilled in terrorist operations, but also uh, spy operations, foreign influence, uh, cyber attacks, you name it, skullduggery, right? These guys are really good at it. And Soleimani uh, ran the show for them. So his loss is a big deal for the Iranians. Right. So let's talk
1: about how his loss came about. And we talked about this in last week's episode. I encourage everyone to go back and listen to it. Also, real quick shout out to our listeners abroad. Cambodia, we love you. Also Poland. Yeah, Poland and France. What? That's right. Not bad. Yeah, uh, but this is how we get to the drone assassination at the Baghdad airport
0: of Soleimani. So basically, it seems like Soleimani was in town to talk to some of those proxy forces that we were referring to earlier. And in particular, uh, the United States, as we heard about last week, had gotten into it with a Shia proxy force, a militia, called Kata'ib Hezbollah, and Kata'ib Hezbollah had been active launching rockets at American forces in the region and managed to hit and kill an American military contractor and some Iraqi allied forces, I think, uh, about 10 days ago. Um, After that happened, we responded with a salvo of air attacks that hit several of this militia's training sites. Uh, and killed about 25 of their members. This is what we talked about in last week's episode. So Soleimani basically flew into Baghdad, apparently with the leader of the uh, militia that I just referenced. And their car was hit by a Reaper uh, Hellfire missile. (laughs) A Hellfire missile from a Reaper drone while it was leaving Baghdad airport. It was a precision strike targeting two vehicles. So we knew where he was going to be, and we knew that he would be vulnerable at this time, and we took him out.
1: Yeah, it, is, it remains entirely unclear what the greater purpose of Soleimani's trip to Iraq was. Now, again, in that 2013 Dexter Filkins piece, he's called the Shadow Commander. After that, in the last several years, he becomes a celebrity of sorts. You got to remember back to 2013 and the rise of ISIS, the Soleimani, the Quds Force supporting these Shia militia in Iraq. This was viewed it all they were very effective. In fighting off Isis and in a weird moment the US and the Shia militia were on the same side yeah, on the same side fighting Isis and this makes Soleimani a celebrity of sorts in Iran for keeping Isis out but this is a crazy thing because during this time the US and Iran are on the same side they're cooperating without coordinating
0: mm-hmm. the enemy of my enemy is my friend right that's right and we shared an enemy
1: and now that ISIS has been largely reduced, we say, OK, we return to the status quo. Status quo ahead of t- before this was Shia
0: versus the U.S. Let's rumble. And
1: it's it's not a good
0: scene. Uh, it's definitely not a good scene. So um, let's take a quick break and we'll get into all the problems that this assassination has caused uh, most immediately and then what we think might happen in the near future. Hello, valued listeners. If you like what you're hearing on The Elucidators, please do us a solid and tell everyone you know about the podcast. If you really love us, please also feel free to rate us five stars on your podcast store, be it iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever, and write us a glowing review, because we rely on your positive feedback and word of mouth to grow and improve. And if you have comments or questions, you can email us at allonewordtheelucidators at gmail.com or tweet us at the underscore elucidators. We may even answer your question on the show. As I said earlier, people are kind of terrified. About what might happen next after we've killed this guy, and the Iranians have responded with this salvo of ballistic missiles uh, shot from Iran into Iraq to hit our bases, right? Although apparently without any American casualties. Yeah. And uh, there's been a lot of what I would call fairly irresponsible reporting, <laughs> calling uh, you know this thing kicking off as World War Three. Hashtag World War Three has been trending uh, on Instagram. I can tell you that much. And uh, people have real concerns. So. Uh, I thought one thing we could do was go through some of the major concerns and talk through and see whether or not they're realistic, right? First of all, Sumi, is this World War III? What's going on? It is absolutely
1: not World War III. This doesn't have many of the necessary parts to become World War III. First of all, to have a World War III, one, you'd need the world. (laughs) Right. Second, you'd need a proper war. There won't be a proper war between the U.S. and Iran because escalation is absolutely going to be owned by the U.S. We have military dominance
0: over Iran
1: in every single possible way. Conventionally,
0: and also in nuclear weapons too, although that's another thing that won't happen.
1: Yeah, in nuclear weapons, and air power, and naval power. Okay, right now we have thousands of troops in the Middle East like basically surrounding Iran, whether you're in Afghanistan
0: or any number of countries in the Arab part of the Middle East. We have thousands of troops, but let me ask you this. Do we have enough troops to actually invade Iran?
1: Not right now. We don't.
0: Not even close, right? No,
1: there's 500,000 regular Iranian military. They're mostly there as, uh, to use a chess metaphor, they're the pawns. They're the small pieces. They would be there as defensive forces if a ground invasion happened.
0: Yeah, they're mostly there, but by all accounts, to kill Iranians, from what we've seen. But yeah.
1: Okay, then, as we talked about, there's the Revolutionary Guard, which is about 175,000. And then there's 10,000 other ground forces that could be used that are sort of in between this uh, traditional Iranian military category and the Revolutionary Guard. Right now, we don't have enough troops to, if we wanted to invade Iran. If we wanted to invade Iran, and... No Americans want to invade Iran, even the biggest Iran hawks. You can turn on Fox News. I watched some of Hannity tonight. There's kind of loose talk. I would say irresponsible talk from elected representatives and some other folks talking about mushroom clouds and Iran as Nazis. And
0: yeah, it's total bullshit. It's it's unhelpful. Very unhelpful Uh, sensationalists. And I'm sure driving amazing ratings. Just like we're hoping that uh, this situation drives our own show's ratings, but that's neither here nor there.
1: Hey, who's the number one news and commentary in Cambodia?
0: Boom, right here. You, you can't see me, but I'm pointing to myself. Both thumbs. Um, yeah, so to fight a world war or even Gulf War III, like a ground war against Iran, would necessitate a draft, which is why we're never going to do it. Um, this is another question that people have, especially younger people. Am I going to get drafted and sent to the front? The answer is no. There is probably never going to be another draft.
1: Steve, that's absolutely right. Looking at this from American politics, American domestic politics, there is not going to be a draft. It also all should be said, looking at this from the Iranians' perspective, there's a statement that their foreign minister, Javad Zarif, put out on Twitter. And it, here, this is what it says. Iran took and concluded proportionate measures in self-defense under Article 51 of UN Charter targeting base from which cowardly armed attack against our citizens and se- senior officials were launched. We do not seek escalation of war. This is the key part. We do not seek escalation of war, but we'll defend ourselves against any aggression. Now, decoding that, they're saying, look, we're done with escalating about this don't come for us because we do have other capabilities. So Steve, here's the question for you. What are their other capabilities?
0: Okay, there are many levers that the Iranians can pull because as I said earlier, they're basically masters of asymmetric warfare or what I would like to call skullduggery. They're good at blowing up oil facilities and conducting economic warfare uh, against the United States by raising our gas prices. They can do stuff like terrorist attacks all over the world, including potentially on U.S. soil. Of course, people are worried about uh, whether or not it's safe to fly on passenger jets within the United States or also around the world. Uh, I think a lot of people are thinking about September 11th when, when they ask that question. And then finally, there's some concern about cyber attacks because the Iranians have demonstrated some cyber capability as well. So there's a lot of different things they can do to respond. And the question is, well, are they going to do it or not, right? And does this tweet really conclude this crazy chapter in U.S.-Iranian relations? It might, as long as our president (laughs) decides not to wake up tomorrow morning and escalate. This might close the book, right? On the other hand, the Iranians may be thinking, hey, we have sort of done enough In public to respond to this act because we were under major domestic pressure to respond to Soleimani's assassination. He was a beloved figure within Iran, especially among the Revolutionary Guard Corps who were out for blood. So we had to do something, right? And we did something that didn't kill any Americans and wasn't likely to. Uh, We did it just because we had to. However, we still see Trump as our enemy, at this point, undoubtedly, and we want to attack him. We want to get rid of him and hurt him personally. So what can we do in order to make that happen? How can we harm him politically and make sure that he doesn't get reelected, for instance, right? There's a lot of different ways to respond, not all of which involve attacking the United States directly. Yeah,
1: man. So it sounds like what you're saying is this chapter of tensions between the US and Iran over the last, say, call it month, month and a half, The Iranians want it closed, but they're not done. They're probably going to come back in one way or another. And what you're saying is you think that looking at all of their motivations and their constraints, that they're probably going to go
0: after Trump personally. It's interesting. Uh, I think that the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini has actually said in an interview Ah, uh, when we chant "Death to America," we're not talking about the American people. We're talking about the people responsible for this act. We're talking about your leaders, Trump and Pompeo, and uh, the people that have enabled them. And I think that's a very interesting message because what it says is basically we would like a new administration to come in and kind of reinstate the deal that Trump reneged on, right—the nuclear deal—and we would probably welcome opportunity for reproachment to a certain extent. We didn't want any of this steam coming from Trump. Uh, we were pretty happy with our deal, and we were happy with the state of affairs. So if we can help get rid of Trump, which I think unequivocally they really want to do now, they're going to take those measures. And when you think about Donald Trump, you don't think about propriety. You don't think about um, having... Everything tucked away uh, and all the T's crossed and the I's dotted. You think about massive personal vulnerabilities. You think about the Trump organization being opened to being hacked and then document dumps being conducted basically on the public internet. There's there's so many different ways that determined hackers could hurt Trump and his business interests and his legal interests. The man's being impeached right now. So even a like a couple well-placed pieces of evidence could actually tip the fulcrum against him either in the impeachment trial or in the court of public opinion prior to the election. Yeah, we have an election in
1: this country in yeah, 11 months from now, we'll have a big national election. And there have been uh, the, the common refrain during these last couple of weeks of tension by Democrats has been, how is this better than the Iran deal? It's not. Right. This is like I'm sure I'm pretty sure that that exact tweet has gone out from several folks that are on the left, left of center in this country.
0: Yeah, this is much worse because the we should also say the the one measure that the Iranians have taken is that they've restarted uranium enrichment, which they were not doing. So they're not they're not racing towards having a nuclear bomb, but they're definitely moving in that direction. And that was not the case when they were adhering to the JCPOA, the nuclear deal. So Steve,
1: point blank question, because there's some irresponsible chatter happening about (laughs) this right now. Is Iran jibber jabber? There's a lot of a lot of what we call uh, loose talk and bullshit. So So is Iran about to go nuclear?
0: No, they're pretty far away from that. Um, so what they've done is, under the JCPOA, they were not able to hold more than a little bit of low-enriched uranium. Basically, in order to make a bomb, you need to enrich uranium to 80%, and they were they were held under 5%. Um, now they're saying they're going to go up to 20%, which gets them a lot closer to 80%, but it's obviously very far away, right? <laughs> so... Like, if they start to enrich to 20%, then they're months away from a bomb. And even if they get enough for a bomb, uh, they still need to test in order to indicate capability and show everybody that they have a bomb, right? So realistically, they're still months or even years away from having a real nuclear capability that they can use against somebody.
1: Yeah, real quick on nuclear weapons 101. Nuclear weapons are difficult, they're expensive, and they run on uranium, which has to be enriched. And you enrich- Or plutonium, but yeah. And you enrich these these elements by putting them in a centrifuge. A centrifuge is basically a machine that spins around really, really quickly yep and we talked about this right we did these centrifuge these centrifuges are again expensive and difficult to maintain and in the past there have been cyber attacks carried out against iranian centrifuges
0: yep stuxnet in 2010
1: the cyber attacks that okay i mean figuratively blew up some of these uh some of these centrifuges all of which is to say it's iran has been trying to go nuclear for a long time they obviously have not succeeded the Iran deal or JCPOA was by all accounts working to keep Iran from going nuclear. It was also targeted again. It's called the Iran deal, not the Iran peace deal. (laughs) No, it's confusing the way you hear some people talk about it. It's like you say, Hey, why is the Iran deal so bad? Well, cause they're still doing terrorism. Okay. Well, that wasn't what it was intended to do.
0: Wasn't part of the deal. Yeah.
1: So again, Iran is not imminently going nuclear. So Steve, here's another question for you. You ready? Hmm. Could you please start listing countries that want Iran to go nuclear?
0: Uh, you know, that's a tough question. Uh, I was going to go for the goose egg, but I'm going to go ahead and say there's one country uh, that wouldn't necessarily mind, and that country is North Korea. <laughs> because I'm take some heat off of North Korea.
1: Okay, so, <laughs> so
0: <laughs> the Russians don't want it. The Chinese don't want it. Pakistanis don't want it. The Saudis certainly don't want it. We don't want it uh the french Br- british nobody you know who you know who bizarrely really doesn't want it the israelis yeah huh, fancy that yep. right and it's funny you should bring up the israelis uh so benjamin netanyahu the the guy who is somehow still prime minister of <laughs> israel somehow um even though he's under indictment and has apparently lost an election over there recently let slip in a oopsie moment that Israel is a nuclear power. Everybody already knows this. And he pretended like it was an accident, but it was not an accident. It was just a little reminder that they like to make from time to time for largely an Iranian audience. So
1: quick background on Iran-Israel relations. Not good. Not not good. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you will frequently hear death to Israel spoken by by Iranian officials.
0: Yeah. Death to Israel, death to America. So Israel is the little Satan. America is the big Satan. And I'm kind of flattered, personally.
1: I, this is going to sound weird, but little Satan, like maybe just cause we're in LA, but I can see people naming their dogs, little Satan. Anyway.
0: Uh, it's, it's a great name for an MMA fighter for sure.
1: Oh, a female MMA fighter named little Satan, yeah, little
0: Satan. Absolutely.
1: Uh, but part of it is also like, look, they're the Iranians and the Israelis have lots of tensions for long times. This is religious. This is political. It's all of the different arenas in the social world, but this is important. Part of the reason that Iran has had such a hard time developing nuclear weapons is because Israeli intelligence is crazy, crazy good at assassinations.
0: Yeah. And they're, they're even better than the Quds Force. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> the Israelis are super effective at just straight up killing Iranian nuclear scientists, nuclear engineers. You know, a lot of international relations, when people talk about, especially academics, it can sound like super inaccessible and nerdy and filled with jargon. But we're talking about spies killing nuclear scientists. That's James Bond shit.
0: Yeah. Israeli James Bond. Yeah, they have them. So uh, thinking about immediate Iranian responses, one is to start enriching uranium, right? Which is a step back towards making nuclear weapons, but it is not having nuclear weapons or even necessarily that close That's number one. Number two is what is happening in Iraq vis-a-vis the American troop presence there, um, which is a pretty interesting situation. So the Iraqi parliament has apparently voted to expel U.S. troops from Iraq. But did they? Well, so it's confusing, right? Because the current prime minister of Iraq, this guy, al-Mahdi, right? Abdel-Mahdi, yeah. Abdel-Mahdi. He actually has resigned as a result of street protests in Iraq. He's a pro-Iranian figure. um, And there are a lot of people in Iraq, as we've talked about, I think, last week, who do not want Iranian influence uh, taking over Iraq. And so he's resigned, but he's still technically in charge. And so this sort of rump parliament convened without any Sunni members or any Kurdish members, just the Shia members. And these are the three main ethnic groups in Iraq, the Shia Muslims, or the Shia Arabs, the Sunni Arabs, and the Kurds. Um, So they ran a parliament without the other two groups who support (laughs) continued American presence, and basically adopted a non-binding resolution, apparently, to kick the Americans out. And the Americans responded, apparently, by circulating a draft letter saying, okay, we are going to obey your command to leave the country. And then this administration said, no, that was a mistake. We're taking it back. And then Mahdi said, no backsies. So it's kind of hard to say where we stand. But it's ironic that one of Soleimani's main goals was to kick the United States out of Iraq specifically, and we killed him. And now we might get kicked out of Iraq. It's even more ironic that one of Donald Trump's major foreign policy goals is to exit the Middle East, including Iraq. Um, So (laughs) there's actually a lot of aligned interests here in a weird way.
1: Yeah. So you started talking about Iraq and it's a weird thing. So obviously at this point, Americans of all ages know Iraq as a trouble spot for the U.S. If you are of our age, you remember the Gulf War as the sort of first war of your childhood. Yeah, this this lightning war in which we stopped a bad guy from taking uh, a country, stopped Saddam from.
0: Yeah, we went into more detail on this during last week's show. So if you're interested, go back and listen to that show if you haven't already. But
1: if you're looking at Iraq over the last 16 years, you're like, okay, the U.S. comes in, they depose, uh, they depose Saddam, and they try and make a modern democracy out of this country, which is multi-ethnic, has different sects of Islam, and it's not going great steve (laughs) but this is this is where it gets particularly bad because when you say oh the iraqis have the iraqi parliament without representation from two of the three big sects have voted on a non-binding resolution to have the americans leave you're like okay well this is symbolic the shias uh have voted for the americans to leave and the shias are working with slash for the iranians Okay, this isn't good. But part of their reason for saying you need to leave is because the U.S. killed Soleimani on Iraqi soil without Iraqi permission. And the Iraqis said, hey, that is a violation of our sovereignty. We're a sovereign state, America. You don't get to kill people, including an Iraqi, in our soil. Fine.
0: Yeah, by the way, the Iranians went and violated Iraqi sovereignty again by shooting Demand. 15 rockets. Yeah, just now. So, obviously, nobody is listening to the Iraqis, and their country is just turning into a battlefield, which I feel terrible for them. It's not a good outcome.
1: So, now, exactly. So, now if you're Abdel Mahdi, you're in this weird position. You were a weak leader, you dealt with months and months of protests throughout 2019 from Iraqis who were like, hey, man, you're weak. We don't like your stuff. And furthermore, you're kind of just an Iranian tool, and we're we're mostly a young country, we want good jobs, and you're out here messing up our jam, fix that stuff. He doesn't. He decides to step down, becomes the caretaker prime minister. This is like being bad at your job, getting fired, and then getting hired as a temp to do that same job. (laughs)
0: Uh, until further notice they need to organize an election like how is that going to happen with all this stuff going on in their territory right it's like you can't hold an election when there's a US Iran war kicking off in Iraq yeah. that's that makes it pretty challenging
1: and so you're the temp prime minister you're like hey US you cut that stuff out we're sovereign and then your boys in Iran do the same thing to your bases. You are the prime minister of this country, and the Iranians just shot 15 missiles. Okay, four of them failed. They, they successfully landed 11 missiles at these massive Iraqi bases. Are you going to pop off now, or are you going to be a good boy and keep quiet? Uh,
0: I think probably the latter.
1: Right, which is to say, no one, to your point, no one has to respect this guy.
0: No. The United States has basically said, we're not leaving anytime soon or until we feel like it. And Trump has come around and said, now is not the time, because if we were to leave now, Iran would just come in and take over, which is accurate. Um, and ISIS comes back. Yeah. He promised to leave and let Iran fight ISIS, by the way, um, which is not necessarily the worst idea in the world. But it's like, do you want to like leave under these circumstances, getting kicked out in shame? in a way that is like advertised to the entire world? Probably not, right? Although we don't really know what Trump is gonna do, and, and maybe we should talk a little bit about whether or not the book is actually closed on this particular chapter. So we've had the assassination, and we've had the response from the Iranians uh, shooting missiles, and it appears that that could be the end of it for now, at time of recording. But we could also wake up tomorrow and see that Trump has ordered airstrikes within Iran on military targets. Or any number of different things could be happening, right? Look, of the many things
1: that are uncertain about the current president of the United States, one of them that no one disputes is that fellow watches a lot of cable news. He sure does. Crazy amounts of cable news. Like eight, nine, ten hours a day, apparently. (laughs) Hashtag executive time. And so tomorrow morning when he turns on the morning cable shows, He'll surely get favorable coverage from Fox and Friends. But if he flips over to Morning Joe or the CNN show, they're going to be brutal on him to, to a certain extent, like
0: rightfully so. Uh, to a very large extent, I would say. This is what we like to call an own goal in soccer terminology or international relations. This is, this is uh, where you hit yourself in your nuts really bad. But once he's touched this off, we've seen that Trump likes to take risks, even when he probably shouldn't. And he may think that making things worse in the Middle East will raise his profile going into the election and help him win because the economy is good and he'll be a wartime president, right? And that's usually a winning combination for a second term. Uh, I think what he's not thinking about very critically is the fact that a war with Iran would probably drive energy prices through the roof, uh, which would tank the economy, lead to a recession, and uh, get him diselected, right?
1: Yeah, look, I don't see a version of military escalation with Iran, especially if it gets viewed as a diversion from impeachment as
0: beneficial to his electoral chances. I agree. The question is whether or not he sees that and agrees with you. And I didn't see a, a Soleimani assassination. Nobody thought that was coming, right? That was a little bit out of left field. And it was apparently like the maximum option provided to him on a menu of options from which he was supposed to pick something else (laughs) it was just there to make the other options look more appealing and he was like ah you know what i'm gonna have the steak and the lobster let's do this
1: boom yeah this it's a little bit crazy but two quick things well you just talked about scholars that study uh presidential decision-making call what uh, advisors gave to him the, the choice selection of Soleimani as an extreme. They call this trying to Goldilocks someone, right? The bureaucrats, the advisors surround the one choice they want the president to make with really unsavory, undesirable choices, not expecting that this fella was going to go ahead and choose an undesirable outcome that would send the whole country <laughs> into thinking, wait, yo, are we about to go into World War III? like It was one of the This this guy (laughs) has bizarrely stress-tested our system in ways we hadn't considered. Also, what this is revealed, by the way, so it has been reported widely that both Presidents Bush and Obama had the opportunities to, and Trump previously, I believe, had the opportunities to- To whack this guy. Yeah, they did. And passed on it for fear of the unnecessary tension and escalation that it might cause well guess what we just found out
0: it's causing a lot of unnecessary escalation it caused
1: a lot of tension and escalation but really what the iranians immediate response is going to be is we're not going to kill any americans we're going to attack iraqi bases so it's possible that what we've seen so far is just the first of what iranians are going to do or perhaps and this is also a possibility they were okay with letting Soleimani go because they just
0: don't want the escalation with the U.S. That's right. Um, it should be noted that Pompeo, who appears to be, if not in the driver's seat, certainly in the co-pilot seat on this one, has been dropping uh, Soleimani's name for some time, including last week, yeah. where he made sure to mention it in interviews, Yeah, which is kind of interesting. May have been a bit of a uh, preparing the ground to uh, take this particular chess piece off the board. Anyway, I think that's all we've got for this week, right? Um, Just to recap, this is not World War III. There's not going to be a big terrorist attack in the United States, most likely. Uh, There's not going to be a draft. No. But this is also really not good. (laughs) To be clear, this is not good for the United States and it's not good for Donald Trump and it's not good for the Middle East and it's not good for Iran.
1: No. This was. This is not good for anybody. This was not a good situation. We've made tensions with an adversary much worse. I'm not sticking up for Soleimani. I'm not saying that the assassination doesn't bring positives with it, but I'm saying overall, strategically, for the US, this is not a positive. Furthermore, I'm going to say that it did not necessarily make us secure in an election year where we have questionable election infrastructure because we're now looking over our shoulders at the Iranians in ways that we probably were not before.
0: I- Yeah. I guess if you're anti-Trump, the good news is that they're going to be probably trying to get rid of him. But do we want do we want, you know, like be sitting in our country conducting a democratic election and basically cheering on various foreign parties to interfere in the election? Trump's already run that playbook and it looks really bad and it's a poor precedent to follow him in that. No.
1: The election of 2000, the election of 2016, we've had two elections that have an asterisk next to them. They've been compromised, yeah. An asterisk next to them for at least half of the country. It's not good for the democracy. It's not good for the republic. And it's something that should be taken very seriously. And so the idea that the Iranians have these great cyber capabilities and they have every incentive to push Trump and Iran hawks out and to hopefully support a democratic candidate who might re-engage with the Iran deal, just because they have coinciding interests... it's a tense point and we're going to have to keep watching. That's not
0: the way we want to do it. (laughs) No, we want to do it legally that the right way, the institutional way. All right. We're going to leave it there for this week. Thanks a lot. Sumi, for an extra wide show and an extra serious situation, which we will continue to monitor. Correct. Yeah, we will monitor it because this is not going anywhere. It is not. And we may very well be back next week to talk about it more. I I really hope not. Yeah, me too. All right. Later.